0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, the book of Amos chapter two continued. Well, as we continue with Amos chapter two today, I want to take a moment to look back on, to review the, the that final section of last week's lesson as it concerns the matter of morality and the existence of a divine law code. Now this issue was woven throughout the book of Moses, as it is throughout our study on the book of Hosea, and I suppose (laughs) bringing this issue up yet again might be met by some who are listening to this with, uh, with eye rolls and droopy eyelids. Um, But I'm going to warn you in advance, we will not finish with it today, nor will we abandon the subject as we work our way through several of the Minor Prophets, because the topic of morality as meaning obedience to the Mosaic Covenant is always embedded in those inspired words. If there is one single overriding cause. Behind the weakening of the Christian Church and of Judaism, and of the loss of moral direction within our world societies, with Western societies leading the way, it is this. We have intentionally ignored, even discarded, the only, the only universal moral law code that has ever been given to mankind the Law of Moses. Until this is resolved, until God's moral law code is reinstituted as foundational to the church, the synagogue, and to our societies, to the demise, by the way, of centuries of man-made religious doctrines that are contrary to God's written laws and commands, this downward spiral of world events and the chaos that we're enveloped in, it's only going to intensify, I'm going to take a moment to quote to you excerpts of a recent article that was written by Ben Shapiro that addresses this matter from a slightly different angle. and It was entitled, The Death of Eternal Truths and the New Paganism. He says this, Last week Pope Benedict Benedict XVI died. At the age of 95. His life was marked by adherence to a belief in an eternal truth above all. And as he stated in a 2008 meeting with Catholic educators at the Catholic University of America, he said, truth means more than knowledge. Knowing the truth leads us to discover the good. We observe with distress this notion of freedom being distorted. Freedom is not an opting out, it's an opting in, it's a participation in being itself. Hence, authentic freedom can never be attained by turning away from God. There is a truth, and that truth must be pursued. The only substitute for truth is falsehood. Human beings have sussed out eternal truths over the course of millennia, and to discard those truths in favor of subjectivism is crippling. Those eternal truths are rooted in the belief that God made us in His image, that He granted us roles and responsibilities, and that true freedom lies in making choices within the boundaries of those rules and those responsibilities. What happens when we discard those truths? Disaster strikes. First, we lose belief in something higher then we lose belief in ourselves, and we are seeing the consequences of this two-step process before us in real time. Civilizationally, the loss of inherited wisdom and traditional values has resulted in new ersatz gods to worship, and as the West loses its links with traditional wisdom, it breaks loose of its philosophical moorings. The consequences will be dire unless those moorings are reinforced. And they can only be reinforced by those who have the courage. Those who have the courage to defend eternal truths. Not merely hide behind the tolerance of pluralism, a repository for the cowardice, who stand correctly stand with free speech, but incorrectly think that That stance is sufficient alone to win the day. In the end, either the truth will win out or it's going to be destroyed. And As Pope Benedict XVI told the bishops of the United States in 2012, the church in the United States is called in season and out of season to proclaim a gospel which not only proposes unchanging moral truths, but proposes them precisely as the key. To human happiness and to social prospering. Defenders of traditional values of all stripes are called to the same quest. Gosh, I wish I could have written that. So, now the question that I set before us all today is the same one that God's biblical prophets proposed. Where does truth come from? If it's from God, then who is it intended for? Is it only for Israel? Or perhaps it's for those from anywhere and everywhere who worship the God of Israel. Or is it for every human individual to follow, every individual that has ever or will ever live? See, the book of Amos, Amos opens by demonstrating that since Jehovah is God over all nations and not just Israel, then logically, his moral code applies to all mankind equally, regardless of where they may reside, what ethnicity they may possess, what language they speak or any of the many human cultural differences and variations among ourselves that might exist. And while the truth is set down for us to know, it comes from only one source, the Bible. The moral laws that form the basis of that truth, which is given to us in the form of a divinely constructed and written code. That sets those boundaries around human behavior on earth, that code comes from only one source, the law of Moses that is contained within that same Bible. So with that fundamental understanding in mind, an understanding that is deeply controversial within Christianity, but it ought not to be, let's resume our study of Amos chapter 2. So, open your Bibles to Amos chapter 2 and follow along. We're going to start at verse 6 and read to the end. Amos chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Here is what Adonai says For Israel's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it, because they sell the upright for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes grinding the heads of the poor in the dust and pushing the lowly out of the way. Father and son sleep with the same girl, profaning my holy name, lying down beside my any altar on, on clothes that were taken in pledge, drinking wine in the house of their God, bought with fines they imposed. I destroyed the Emori, that's the Amorites, before them, though tall as cedars and strong as oaks, and I destroyed their fruit above and their root below. More than that, I brought you up from Egypt, led you 40 years in the desert, so that you could have the Amorites' land. I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, other young men of yours to be Nazarim, Nazarites. People of Israel, isn't that true, and I But you gave the serene, wine to drink. He ordered the prophets, don't prophesy. Enough. I will make all this crush you, just as a cart overloaded with grain crushes what's under it. Even the swift won't be able to flee. The strong won't be able to use their strength. The warriors won't save themselves. Archers won't be able to stand. The fastest runners won't save themselves. Those on horses won't save themselves. On that day, Even the bravest warriors will throw off their weapons and flee, says Adonai. This oracle against Israel is the eighth, it's the final of the eight oracles of judgment set against certain named nations that are described as completely rebellious against God. Now, the first six were pagan Gentile nations. The final two were about God's chosen and set-apart people, Israel, that currently was a divided nation. One Israelite nation, a kingdom, was called Judah. The other Israelite nation, another kingdom, called Ephraim, or alternatively, Ephraim Israel. Now, three general categories of Israel's unfaithfulness are listed. Social injustice, Sexual immorality and impurity, and profane and perverted worship of Jehovah, that included their religious rituals. Now, we've already discussed the first two categories. That third category, the perverted worship of God, is all the worse because social injustice is also employed in this worship observance. What is described in verse 8 is akin to our robbing someone and then thinking it righteous and good to take 10% of the stolen money and putting it in the collection plate at church. In verse 8, the Israelites are accused of losing clothing, garments, taken and pledged to lie down on in front of every altar. Now these. Clothes taken in pledge, this clothing, regarded the custom of the wealthy who lend money to the poor. Quite literally, the outer garment of the poor was sometimes taken as collateral for a short term loan because that garment was all they had of value. And while of itself this practice is not considered as sin or immoral. The Law of Moses does set down clear boundaries on how this can operate. In Exodus 22, <clears throat> verses 25-26, through 26, if you take your neighbor's coat as collateral, you are to restore it to him by sundown, because it's his only garment. He needs it to wrap his body. What else does he have in which to sleep? Moreover, if he cries out to me, I'll listen because I'm compassionate. Now, this Amos passage concludes, or rather continues to highlight, that all the crimes listed against God contained within these eight oracles of judgment, regardless of which nation committed them, specifically violates one or another of the laws of Moses. The other matter contained within the same complaint is that those wealthy few who are immorally holding on to those garments of the poor as collateral are using them, using that clothing to set before altars to Jehovah. And what makes it all the more egregious is that these altars they are using for worship, well, they're illegitimate altars. They shouldn't even exist since the law of Moses only allows for a single altar and place for sacrifice, the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. The next matter, still in verse 8, concerns drinking wine at the temple of their God. Now, first, the temple of worship that's being spoken of is not the temple in Jerusalem, it's about the other temples that were erected in Ephraim Israel. Second, this is not speaking about the libation portion of every sacrificial offering that nearly always included the requirement of wine. It is speaking about drinking bouts, drunkenness, that was typical at the altars and temples of the pagan gods, but now incorporated to Ephraim Israel's perverted worship of Jehovah, God of Israel. Further, the accused used the money they gain from fines for petty crimes or even loans being paid back late to buy this wine. Now, the notion of fines here is in the same notion as in our modern idea of fines. That is, They are penalties for various infractions of the law or contract terms, perhaps. However, biblically speaking, the Law of Moses did not condone the idea of fines as penalties. Rather the idea was of reparations and restitution to make a victim whole, not as a means of enriching local governments and lining the pockets of the already wealthy. There are numerous case examples called out in the Law of Moses about this matter of reparations. Here's just two of them. In Exodus 21 verses 18 and 19, if two people fight and one hits the other with a stone or with his fist and the injured party doesn't die but is confined to his bed, then if he recovers enough to be able to walk around outside, even with a cane, the attacker will be free of liability except to compensate him for his loss of time and take responsibility for his care until his recovery is complete. Another example same chapter of Exodus 21, moving down to verses 28-32. to If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox is to be stoned and its flesh not eaten, but the owner of the ox will have no further liability. However, if the ox was in the habit of goring in the past, and the owner was warned, but he didn't confine it, so that it ended up killing a man or a woman, then the ox is to be stoned and the owner, too, is to be put to death. However, a ransom may be imposed on him, and the death penalty will be commuted if he pays the amount imposed. If the ox gores a son or a daughter, the same rules apply. If the ox gores a male or a female slave, its owner must give their master 12 ounces of silver, and the ox is to be stoned to death. Again, notice, not fines, not fines, restitution, reparation to the victim. Let's move on to verse 9. Here begins a historical retrospective on what it is that makes Israel, Israel. And it begins with something that is actually rather intriguing when we back away and we examine it for what it actually suggests. Amos 2.9 reads like this. I destroyed the Amori, that's Amorites, I destroyed the Amorites before them, though tall as cedars and strong as oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their root below." Now, as I said, Amori is Hebrew for Amorite. A people group who are said to be tall as cedars and strong as oaks. Now, while it might not seem so on the surface, If we take this for what it is telling us, it opens an uncomfortable controversy that the church has alternately wrestled with and then avoided like the plague, ever since the formation of a Gentile-dominated church happened in Rome in the 4th century AD. Here's the issue in the context of Amos 2.9. Why are the Amorites singled out? Were the Amorites really as tall as cedars and strong as oaks? Or was this just a gross exaggeration? And if they were merely unusually tall and strong, why do we find this specifically identified as a general characteristic of the Amorites who God found only worthy of destruction? And what does their size have to do with anything? God doesn't like big people. Now let's go to another level. What exactly was this bone that God had to pick with the Amorites? Now, this is actually no trivial matter, and it deserves some attention. See, the first place we hear of this determination by God. To severely punish the Amorites was all the way back in Genesis. And it was in the form of a prophecy. In Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16, we read this Adonai said to Avram, Abraham, Know this for certain, your descendants will be foreigners in a land that is not theirs. They will be slaves and held in oppression there 400 years. But I will also judge that nation, the one that makes them slaves, and afterwards they will leave with many possessions. Now as for you, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Only in the fourth generation will your descendants come back here, because only then will the Amorites be ripe for punishment. Kind of a funny throw-in phrase there, isn't it? Now, what exactly had the Amorites done to be the target of God's punishment? It's not stated. Why the wait to punish them? Unclear. Next we see the Amorites listed as one of the several people groups that operated within various parts of Canaan, all of them marked by God for destruction because of the danger they posed to Israel. In that it was their perverted worship practices that might rub off on God's chosen and then lead them astray. Listen to Deuteronomy, chapter 20, verse 17. Rather, you must destroy them completely: the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as Adonai your God has ordered you, so that they won't teach you to follow their abominable practices. Which they do for their gods, this causing you to sin against Adonai, your God. Later on, we read of Joshua encountering these Amorites and deeply fearing them. In Joshua 7 7, Joshua said, O Adonai Elohim, why did you take the trouble to bring this people across the Jordan if you meant to hand us over to the Amorites and have us perish? We should have been satisfied to live on the other side of the Jordan. So another question gets raised. Why is Joshua so certain that should the Israelites face off against the Amorites, Israel will lose and be destroyed? Earlier in the Torah, we find an interesting passage that concerns the twelve spies that were set out to scout the land of Canaan before Moses and Joshua led Israel to enter into it. And this narrative appears in Numbers 13. The bottom line is, is that while some of the spies spoke about how the land is so very good and worth the taking, another group of the spies said this in Numbers 13, 31-33. to 33. But the men who had gone with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread a negative report about the land that they had reconnoitered for the people of Israel by saying the land we passed through in order to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw there were giant. We saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak, who was from the Nephilim, and to ourselves we look like grasshoppers by comparison, and we looked that way to them too. What we find is that these spies say that the land of Canaan is full of giants. I mean, is their description accurate? Does that reflect reality? Or is it just hyperbole because they just wanted to avoid battle? Further, we get these cryptic words that these huge men they claim to have seen were associated with something called the Nephilim. And it seems that some element of the Amorites was also connected with the Nephilim, and this may have had much to do with why God wanted the Amorites destroyed. So there's this deep mystery here that needs to be explored, perhaps solved. Now's is as good a time as any to pause and do just that. So we're now going to detour from our study of Amos for just a time. To delve into these Nephilim and these giant men, including Amorites, that were said to be tall as cedars. Now, this exploration will continue past today, it will go into the next lesson. And I open this can of worms because it has much to do with properly understanding not only certain strange statements made of both the Old and New Testaments, I mean, statements that are real head scratchers that at first glance seemed to belong to folklore rather than to biblical truth, but also in order to peel back the layers of historical Hebrew context that forms the background for the many, many biblical writings that we place so much of our trust in as truth. I'm going to start with a premise that can, admittedly, be a little bit challenging to wrap our minds around, but I assure you it can be grasped by and it is crucial for every truth seeker and Bible student to understand. Okay? It is that every writer of the Bible wrote and interpreted God and his commands and also the world events they either witnessed or they prophesied about through the lens of their own historical, cultural understanding of their own traditions, their own norms. That is, the biblical writers formed their ideas and their sentences and they chose certain words because, subconsciously, they believed that the world operated in a certain way, which they took for granted. And it was assumed that the hearer or the reader of their writings would be of the same culture as the writer. Therefore the readers would, of course, hold those same cultural viewpoints. These were viewpoints that needed no explanation, because for them they were self-evident, and or their particular culture held these viewpoints as immutable, as embedded beliefs that had long ago been settled. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. In modern America, a writer of a book, or an article, or even a common person having just an everyday conversation might talk about the subject of voting. Exactly what voting is, what it means, where the concept of voting originated, why voting was even made part of our system of governing, and how it generally worked that's not included in the discussion because it's considered common knowledge. There's no need to explain it. We merely utter the word voting and a common mental picture between the writer and the reader is formed and we just move on. Voting is but one of the many aspects of our American culture and life that even if we don't correctly understand the technical nuances Of the voting process, we feel like we sufficiently do, so we don't seek information or input about it, nor do we even challenge the notion of its existence in any way. It just is. Well, the writers of the Bible were the same concerning matters of their own culture. Some things just were. Our challenge as modern believers is to discover what those ancient Hebrew cultural mindsets were. To try to unearth those unspoken, unspoken, but deeply believed thoughts and background understandings that just bound them together as a society of Hebrews. Because whatever they intended by those words that they wrote down to communicate, that's how we're to understand them. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves misunderstanding what is meant, which can only lead to misapplication of biblical principles or even to entirely incorrect knowledge of the basic definitions of the biblical principles themselves. So, in this exploration, I'm going to rely heavily on the writings of Amar Anas that concern how Mesopotamian societies, far more ancient, than Israel, had the ideas of certain historical events embedded into their traditions, and also how we find those same ideas appearing in the traditions of Israelite society at a later time. I'm also going to lean on the work of Dr. Dr. Michael Heiser, who deals primarily with ancient Hebrew recorded thought concerning traditions and beliefs and where they came from. Now there are other writers I researched to add other dimensions to this discussion, but Anus and Heiser form perhaps the bulk of my understanding as their works taken together are probably the most articulate and thorough. And I assess that they are among the more intellectually honest, the least prone to doctrinal influences that can and usually do obfuscate the biblical facts, dismiss the difficult and upsetting passage and then just muddy the waters of proper interpretation. Now, what this exploration is going to revolve around is gaining understanding that leads back in time to a little known group of creatures that the ancients called the Watchers. The Watchers. Now, the Watchers are mentioned in extra biblical Hebrew works, none of them more prominent than in First Enoch, the book of Enoch. And I want to say at the outset that I make no claim that these creatures necessarily existed, nor if they did, that the traditions and beliefs handed down about them and their offspring are fully accurate. I'm saying that the Hebrew people of the many Biblical eras believed these traditions. They believed as did the folks of other cultures—much more ancient than that of Israel's—as did most or all of the Old Testament and New Testament writers, because such beliefs were just inherent to their culture. This reality ought not to be, not to be terribly difficult for us to accept. After all, virtually all the writers of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, accepted as undeniable fact that there were multiple gods in existence, because this too was inherent not only in their cultural traditions, but in virtually all cultural traditions. So when there is mention of other gods in the Bible, as far as the biblical writers were concerned, they were stating objective reality. They were incorrect, of course. But it was what they sincerely believed and they thought was so. Therefore, the threads of these beliefs were deeply embedded in their thoughts, some of which went on to show up in Holy Scripture. Good starting point for this discussion is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says this in time when men began to multiply on earth and daughters were born to them the sons of god saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose and adonai said my spirit will not live in human beings forever for they too are flesh therefore their lifespans to be 120 years the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Hmm. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the ancient heroes, men of renown. Oh my, what do we do with that? Were we to continue reading, please follow me on this, were we just simply to continue reading Genesis now six, verse five, and on, we see immediately the flood story begins. Interesting. So the flood and the reasons for it had to do with what was written in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I want to be clear what I'm saying. These verses, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, they're just a preamble, maybe an introduction to the flood story. Check it out yourself, read it yourself. The flood happened in order to deal with the problem that is spoken of in the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6. Now, to begin to untangle this topic and hopefully to restore understanding, we must discover what and who these sons of god were that came into the daughters of men and put it frankly this is saying that these sons of god had sexual relations with some beautiful daughters of men and children were born from it in fact some of these offspring are said to have become ancient heroes and were highly renowned for something that isn't really stated So the immediate question is, were these sons of God heavenly beings, or were they merely human beings, just like those daughters of men they mated with? Well, ever since the 4th century, the Christian Church has decided that these sons of God are human men of the line of people emanating from Seth. Seth was Adam and Eve's son who was born after their older son Abel was murdered, murdered by his brother Cain. This so-called Sethite theological principle has no biblical evidence whatsoever to back it up. None. Zero. Nothing in Scripture says that Seth wasn't to have a wife, nor that those descendants of Seth were to have no marriage, were those people coming from the lines of Cain or Abel. Further, when it comes to the actual biblical usage of the term sons of God, as indicating an actual human being, it always had to do with a king of Israel. Prior to uh, to the era of Israel's kings, it was meant in a different context. Then the reference was to heavenly beings, what we could loosely call angels. Here are some of the examples of this use taken from just a few biblical excerpts. Job, chapter 1, verse 6. It happened one day that the sons of God came to serve Adonai, and among them came the adversary. Job 38:1. Then Adonai answered Job out of the storm: Who is this darkening my plans with his ignorant words? Stand up like a man, brace yourself. I'm going to ask you questions, and you're going to give the answers. Where were you when I founded the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Do you know who determined its dimensions or who stretched the measuring line across it? Or what were its where were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Psalm eighty two. Elohim stands in the divine assembly. There with the Elohim He judges. How long will you go on judging unfairly, favoring the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the wretched and the poor. Rescue the destitute and the needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. They don't know. They don't understand. They wander about in darkness. Meanwhile, all the foundations of the earth are being undermined. My decree is you are Elohim, sons of the Most High. All of you. Nevertheless, you're going to die like mortals. Like any prince, you're going to fall. Rise up, Elohim, and judge the earth, for all the nations are yours." Notice the words, you are Elohim, sons of the God Most High. See, Then we learn that the sons of the Most High are cursed to die like mortals. Obviously, these sons of God beings were not supposed to die, but because of something they did wrong, they were cursed to death. Clearly, it is heavenly beings that are being described here. Thus, in Genesis 6, 1-4, what is being addressed is that these sons of Elohim are heavenly beings, some type of angel or angel-like creature, don't really have a name, For, And their nature and substance, then, is set in contrast to the daughters of men who are human beings. It was heavenly beings who came to earth and had sexual relations with human women, the offspring of which was some kind of a hybrid being, and this hybrid being no longer properly fit in either the heavenly or the earthly sphere. The joining of angel and human was a violation of natural law, and the law of Moses improper joining is defined as illicit mixing. That is, two different types are not to be mixed together. Thus we see biblical commandments against two types of thread being used to make a garment, one type coming from animals, wool. Another type coming from plants, linen. We see two different types of seed are not to be planted next to one another, on the chance their roots might become entangled and joined together. There are other illicit mixings that in the New Testament are sometimes referred to as unequal yoking. See, these heavenly beings of Genesis crossed a boundary. They crossed a boundary that was never to be crossed. never. The heavenly realm got mixed with the human physical realm when these heavenly beings came into human women and produced offspring. Now a perverted hybrid was formed. And it was often powerful and large and it was evil. Other parts of the Bible speak about this catastrophic catastrophic event in different ways. Even the apostle Peter brings it up. Listen to Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 1. But among the people there were also false prophets, just as there will be false teachers among you. Under false pretenses they will introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and thus bring on themselves a swift destruction. Many will follow their debaucheries, and because of them the true way will be maligned. In their greed, they will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their punishment, decreed long ago, isn't idle. Their destruction's not asleep, for God did not spare the angels who sinned. On the other hand, He put them in gloomy dungeons lower than Sheol to be held for judgment, and He didn't spare the ancient world. On the contrary, He preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others, but he brought a flood upon this world of ungodly people. And he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, reducing them to ashes and ruin as a warning to those in the future who would live ungodly lives. But he rescued Lot a righteous man who was distressed by the debauchery of these unprincipled people for the wicked deeds which that righteous man saw and heard as he lived among them tormented his righteous heart day and night, so the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, how to hold the wicked until the day of judgment while continuing to punish them. Notice how Peter speaks of the angels who sinned. And how God put them in a in gloomy dungeons on Earth, more precisely, someplace even lower in the ground than the grave, than Sheol. Who are these angels who sinned that Peter speaks of? Is this merely a kind of a collection of angels who individually and over a real long time span committed various offenses that resulted in their imprisonment? Not likely. Peter's angels who sin can be none other than those sons of God we read about in Genesis chapter 6. And notice how immediately Peter follows that statement with what? The flood story. Just as does Genesis 6. The connection's remarkable. Here's yet another new passage, New Testament passage to consider. Here, this comes from the book of Jude. 1st chapter, starting at verse 1, From Judah, a slave of Yeshua the Messiah, and a brother to Jacob, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept for Yeshua the Messiah. May mercy, love, and shalom be yours in full measure, dear friends. I was busy at work writing to you about the salvation we share when I found it necessary to write, urging you to keep contending earnestly for the faith which which was once and for all passed on to God's people. For certain individuals, the ones written about long ago as being meant for this condemnation, have wormed their way in, ungodly people who pervert God's grace into a license for debauchery and they disown our only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. And since you already know all this, my purpose is only to remind you that Adonai who once delivered the people from Egypt later destroyed those who did not trust and the angels that did not keep within their original authority but abandoned their proper sphere, he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting change for the judgment on that great day. So, Jude also writes about a topic that was well known from the most ancient past of the Hebrews, it is that there were angels that abandoned their proper sphere of existence in God's heaven and they came down to earth and did something horrendously wrong that Jude doesn't specifically mention because every Hebrew already knew what it was. It was built into their culture and their tradition. These heavenly beings proper sphere is heaven but in rebellion they came down to earth why they are attracted human females and what did god do with them jude says god bound them in chains until judgment day now what is interesting is that while in second peter virtually every Engle, English english translation, translation avoids using the word and instead substitutes hell or dungeon or some such thing, Peter literally says they are being held captive in a place called Tartarus until the time of judgment. Tartarus is another name for the abyss of demons. I want to sum up what I've told you to this point. It had always been embedded in Israelite history about a mysterious event that changed the course of human history, and it happened before the Hebrews existed as a separate people group, even before Noah's Flood. Angels disobeyed God, left their own sphere, came down to the sphere of humanity and impregnated human women. Now some of these and their offspring are imprisoned someplace on earth, a place envisioned as deep underground, the abyss, Tartarus. Let's open this can of worms just a little bit more. In that passage of Genesis 6, verses 1-4, through 4, we read of the Nephilim, were told were around during the Flood. Now, The obvious reading of this passage is the resultant offspring of these rebellious angel beings and the human women were something called Nephilim, and this means the angels would have crossed over the boundaries between heaven and earth, donned human flesh, and then procreated with human females. Now, while this is the plain reading. The problem is that the Church historically has not been able to stomach such a notion, as angels having sex with humans or even being capable of doing so. The Church refers to Matthew 22.30 as their source for that belief. There in Matthew 22.30 we read, For in the resurrection neither men nor women will marry, rather they will be like angels in heaven. Now this gospel passage never addresses the issue of offspring in any way nor does it approach the idea of idea of angels having or not having an ability to have sexual relations. It is believed according to most Christian traditions, but not confirmed scripturally, that every angel is an individually divinely created being. Now while true, that the Bible defines the primary purpose of human marriage as procreation of our species, this in no way addresses the ability or the inability of angelic beings to procreate if they were given an opportunity. I want to say outright that the ancient Hebrews would have had no issue with the notion that heavenly beings came to earth and were able to have sexual relations with human females if they so chose. Regardless of the wrongness of such an act. Further, we indeed have several examples in the Bible of angels or some type of heavenly being coming to earth and having physical bodies. One or two of them met with Abraham, even ate a meal with him. Two quite visible angels physically grabbed hold of Lot, saved him from a savage crowd in Sodom. Jacob wrestled for hours with a heavenly being in physical form. We even read that angels ministered to Yeshua, to Jesus. As Heiser jokingly states, surely this means more than just angels floating around before Jesus' face. Genesis 6 tells us that the Nephilim, These hybrid offspring of angels and humans were on earth before and after the flood. That is, some number of them, somehow, in some form or another, survived the great deluge. Returning to Numbers 13, recall what verses uh, 32 and 33 said. But the man who had gone with him said, we can't attack those people because they are stronger than we are. They spread a negative report about the land they had reconnoitred for the people of Israel by saying, the land we passed through in order to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw there were giant. We saw the Nephilim, the the descendants of Anak, who was from the Nephilim. And to ourselves, we look like grasshoppers by comparison, and we look that way to them too. The spy sent out to scout out the land of Canaan, personally encountered these giants, called them Nephilim, and said they were the descendants of Anak, which is the tribe that Goliath came from, by the way, who themselves were descended from the Nephilim. That's what we read. So the existence and the reality of the Nephilim and the way they came into being for the Hebrews was common knowledge. Those scouts had to have known of the existence of the Nephilim before Israel ever left Egypt, otherwise they wouldn't even know what they were or how to identify them. It's just that it surprised the Israelites that at least some of them lived in the land of Canaan. Oh my gosh, there's some of them there too. And it showed up of these Nephilim having infiltrated a number of tribes that lived there. It seems that the Nephilim had especially become a dominant part of the Amorites. Now we're just touching the tip of the Watchers and the Nephilim iceberg. Next week we will continue our exploration of this fascinating topic, take the entire lesson to go through it, and begin to incorporate information from the book of first Enoch and see how this matters so much to proper biblical understanding and interpretation. Okay.